for some moments here today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23, where we read, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake, the other man's conscience, I mean not yours, for why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us a right and proper understanding and application of this text. Uh, Be with us now as we look into it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know some of you are probably aware of the the 12-day revival down at at Asbury and some other places that have kind of followed suit as well. And it's it's a beautiful picture, of course, of people coming together and spending time in, in worship and, uh, and singing and confession of sin and, and awareness of God's presence. And, uh, it, it, you know, when you see something like that, it signals certainly that God is at work. Uh, and there are other times in history when this has happened, even for longer periods of time. And, and it's a good opportunity for us to kind of get a glimpse of what it looks like to give glory to God in that context. But after 12 days or however long it is, people go home. And then they, they go to their jobs. They live in neighborhoods. They pick up books and they are students. And the question then becomes, what happens next? And I, at least in my own part, a way of thinking through this, too, a text like this and what Paul's dealing with hits very much on that question. You see, in the Corinthian church, there were a bunch of people who didn't know Christ, had maybe never heard his name. And then when Paul came into town and began proclaiming that there's good news, that this desperate longing you have for something that is fixed and something that gives you forgiveness and something that gives you new life and new hope, that's found in the person of Christ. And the reason you have that is because you long to be reunited with the God who's created you in his image. And Paul was a great declarer of that truth, and people responded to it. But they lived in a time when there were a lot of other ways of trying to make things right, largely with idolatry. Crafted items made of wood and other materials that represented gods, but actually were not gods at all. And people who were worshiping those false gods would offer sacrifices to those gods in the form of meat that came about. And if it was after it was offered, maybe in the temple as a sacrifice, it would get shipped off to the market. So if you went looking for some food, 
you wanted to grill a burger on, on a weekend. You'd go to the, to the market and bring it in. But it raised issues of conscience inside these new believers because they said, okay, now I proclaim Christ. I'm walking in his ways. What, how do I look at this meat that I am consuming and flipping on the grill right now? If it's been offered to an idol, can I still eat it? So this newness of life, this revival in their own hearts then, they take to the actual process of eating and say, can I eat? Can I do this? And we see in this text what, what the Bible does so often, being very practical. Some people who I think sometimes wonder if the Bible has any practical application at all um, need to read a text like this and say, well, it has a ton because I don't know about you, but I plan on eating and drinking sometime soon. Even in, in the Lent season or whatever you're practicing fasting, you still have to break the fast. At some point, you eat and you drink. And the question is, can I eat and drink in such a way that it has any relevance or application to what's happening out here in this idea or this vision of the glory of God, which seems so grand and spectacular. Does that apply even to the basics of eating and drinking? And Paul says, of course. It does. This is a, this is a wonderful summary statement. Wouldn't this be a great life verse? It's super short. There, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If there's one verse maybe that you feel like, hey, I could get my mind around that in terms of memory, but then you'll spend your lifetime unpacking it. And Paul says you should because this is the way we've been created. We do it all for the glory of God. If you do that, then you have the right perspective. And the first thing he's been talking about too, it's a summary statement of whatever you do, do for the glory of God. He says, look, there is freedom of practice. Now, if you've been with us starting in, in chapter 8, he's answering some questions. Hey, what about this? One of them is food sacrifice to idols. And he's kind of rehashing that again, saying, there is a relative freedom that you experience. When you first come to Christ, there's a setting free. And some people also look at something like the, a Christianity and say it's just about rules and restrictions. Well, if you really understand the role of what God's Word is saying, it actually leashes, unleashes you into a freedom you didn't know before. You're, there, there's, there's wonderful freedoms. And the bounds of constraints then, Paul says, are figuring and asking whether or not it's being constructive or good for others. You see, you're no longer just living for yourself. You're living for God, and you're living for other people. And the other people, he starts with first in the family of God. And if something you're doing in this freedom of practice becomes a stumbling block to somebody within the household of faith, then the exercise of your freedom can be restricted for their benefit. It's very others-oriented. And he talks in, that's 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 9. Then he says, hey, let's think about people who don't believe in God, who aren't walking with Christ, there's a chance for you to kind of calibrate and look at your life and say, am I creating stumbling blocks in the way I speak, in the way I behave? And he says, don't, no, two things, don't, don't have, put any stumbling blocks in place and then actually remove those barriers. And that's what we looked at. And in, in chapter 10, he kind of cycles back around here to this kind of Corinthian way of thinking about things. Hey, look, I've got freedom. Everything is permissible. But he says, if it's not beneficial, then don't do it. 
Everything's permissible, but if it's not constructive, if it's not building others up, then don't do it. Don't seek your own good in verse 24, but the good of others. And therefore, you can eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience. Because look, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All music is from God. Somebody said at one point. (laughs) I, I, I don't know who it was, but the idea here is, you know, that All these, God has made everything. Now, we co-opt it sometimes for evil purposes. We misappropriate it, but God himself has given us all these things, and it's good. Even something like pleasure. I think of C.S. Lewis saying in his imagination of what's happening kind of behind the scenes that Satan and his minions have tried to recreate pleasure. They can't do it. That's God's domain. But what they can do is take what's good and pervert it and twist it. And get other people to use it in that way too. Don't let, God, don't let the world and Satan rob us of the joys of pleasure. And guess what? Eating and drinking can be very pleasurable. I've discovered that. I enjoy eating and drinking. And that is something God has given us to enjoy. Within limits and boundaries that he has set. But nonetheless... The beauty of flavors, the flavors of the world. That's a gift from God. I know some of you just like mashed potatoes with no salt. (laughs) You're missing out. That's okay. There'll be a day in glory in heaven when you're experiencing all the beauty of the flavors and you actually like it. And you don't have to pull out the Pepto-Bismol afterwards or whatever the case may be. This is a chance for us to practice the freedom that we have in Christ. And that gives us a a deeper, fuller, richer experience now, which is a taste of the glory to come. So this is a very practical text. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I want to suggest it's not just a freedom of practice, but in a sense, then, a freedom of perspective. And what I mean by that is if you embrace a verse like this, a summary statement of what Paul's been talking about, it shifts your perspective. It gives you a freedom to look at even the basic things like eating and drinking and say, I can do this for the glory of God. The glory of God. Paul Tripp defines the doctrine of God's glory as encompassing the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. So glory seems like it's kind of this big thing, and yet it's married here to eating and drinking. And and we see, for example, that I would suggest eating and drinking, as it relates to God's glory, is a glimpse of what it is like, but it's just temporary. Eating and drinking is temporary. God's glory is eternal. When you eat and you drink, you get hungry again. You get thirsty again, or whatever you do. You exercise, you need rest. But these are pictures then, even on the most basic level, Uh, shadows of a real substance that is to come, which is God's glory. And when I talk about the freedom perspective then, I think you have an opportunity, even when you're eating and drinking, you say, do it for the glory of God. What you can realize is that as I eat and drink and take this in, I get hungry again, but it's a picture then of something that is to come. There's a great feast being prepared in this whole chain of things When those who believe in Christ then are united with him, we have a picture of what it's like. It's a feast. It's a wedding. It's like a wedding feast 
with food that just keeps coming, 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 and you don't get full, apparently. That's awesome. You have whatever you want. It's like, it's like a giant buffet. You like bacon? There it is. Copious amounts. And even that, for the Jewish mindset, was a barrier. And Paul and Peter wrestle with this. Peter himself, who was a leader of the Jewish church, when he has that vision in Acts chapter 8 and says, everything is clean. I mean, there was kind of a distinctiveness set apart, but now you have freedom of practice. And when you eat and when you drink, it is a picture of something that is yet to come. It's temporary, but this glory is eternal. Now, I want to suggest to you that that's a helpful way even to think through things like suffering and difficulty. When, you have, when you're going through hardship and things are just hard and difficult. Think about this connection. Paul makes this connection in the, another letter that he writes to the Corinthians. Listen to what he says. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles... That doesn't seem like a very fair statement to make, right? A light and momentary trouble, and you say, well, Paul doesn't understand what I'm going through. Well, he was beaten, he was persecuted, he was maligned. I mean, he had a whole list of things that happened to him. And on a scale, he's not minimizing the, the hurt. He's saying on a relative scale compared to something, it's light and momentary. So if you're really struggling with life and it's difficult and you... It's, it's so hard and, and downcast and you're tired of the evil and you're sick and you feel like you can't go on. On a relative scale, that's light and momentary. It doesn't mean it's not heavy. It just means compared to something, it's light. What's it compared to? The light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He is putting it on a scale. Compared to our troubles, is, no matter how hard they might be, are nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. So when you, and I'm talking about perspective if you're a believer, when you're downcast and feel like I can't go on, here's a thought for you. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you're mourning, and this is happening, think about the glory of God, the glory that is to come. Those of you who've known the greatest pain and the greatest sorrow when heaven and glory arrive, we'll understand more what it means to have those things removed. Isn't it a beautiful picture in, in the book of Revelation where there's this communion again too and the, and the feast and everything is as it should be and there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears. That's the weight of glory. And when you eat and when you drink or whatever you do, that's a pretty big blanket statement. You're doing it with that perspective in mind. And I think that infuses value in the eating and drinking and even in the suffering. Because the weight of glory to be revealed is so much greater. That gives us hope and strength in the most practical sort of ways. Eating and drinking is a gift from God. And enjoying it actually gives God glory. Enjoying it gives glory. God, glory. You know, I was thinking uh, last week about Drew's comments. He made mention in the book of Luke. You know, there's a book about the Son of Man came eating and drinking, that he's always going to some place to eat, eating with somebody or leaving someplace throughout the entire book of Luke. For the most part, it's all consumed with eating. 
and drinking. And the Son of, Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom. He came eating and drinking. And so eating and drinking is something God has given us to enjoy. And when we refuse to enjoy it, we're actually not reflecting a picture of the glory of God that we get to enjoy. We have freedom to do that. I don't know how many of you know Babette's Feast, if you're familiar with that movie uh, that was made in 1987. It's actually originally a short story uh, by the same person who wrote Out of Africa in 1951. Has anyone ever seen that movie? Okay, there's a few, few of you have. But it's a Danish community, and it's uh, four sisters. Their dad was a pastor of a church. And it was a very kind of legalistic sort of setting. The, they, they, they were sort of under the mindset that to be faithful followers of God, we can't enjoy anything. So it was all about rules and restrictions. And food itself was not to be enjoyed. There's a lady who comes into the scene. Her name is Babette. She's from France. She was fleeing from a war. She comes to the house. The father has died. The four sisters, all spinsters, because you can't enjoy marriage, you see. You have to sit around and be miserable. This glorifies God. In their, in their mindset, and she comes in, and she, for 14 years, serves them uh, and, and prepares some food for them. They don't like food that is flavorful because you can't enjoy that kind of thing. Well, she has a lottery ticket that's renewed every single year. One year, she wins the lottery, 10,000 francs. And what she decides to do with this is to prepare a feast for the entire village, right? Hosted in the home of these four spinsters. So she spends all this money and exotic things start coming from all around. And, And the sisters have a little bit of a crisis because they say, we can't enjoy any. We can't show that we're enjoying any of this stuff. That wouldn't bring honor and glory to God. So they make a plan. We'll eat it but we're not going to enjoy it, is what they say. So she creates this amazing feast and brings people together. And it's a small town where all those small town things happen, where people have long-term grudges against each other. There's no forgiveness. They gossip and they whisper. And they don't enjoy anything. Well, as they start consuming the meal and these flavors and the wine that she's brought in and everything like that, people start loosening up a little bit. And as you watch the movie, it, they start kind of getting a little bit more um, expressive. And at the end of it, old, old wounds have been healed. And there's a freshness and a vibrance to life. And they begin laughing and enjoying things and, and, and talking and it's, it's a beautiful picture. In fact, one of the people who had come was a suitor of one of these spinsters. And she wasn't going to get married. And he says, you know, this reminds me of a meal that I had at one of the most famous restaurants in Paris years and years and years ago. And, of course, you find out that Babette was actually the, the main chef at that famous restaurant. And she was now practicing and plying her art among them. Spent all the money that she had on this meal. And when they find out that's the case and they're afraid that she's going to leave, she said, where would I go? I have no money. She spent it all on that meal because she wanted them to get a taste of God's glory that they had not yet experienced. So you can be in a church. You can be in a group of people, a small group, 
right? Maybe even a, a, an atheist church. You get together, and you can eat and drink and enjoy it, but maybe not for God's glory. And when I say this is a perspective changer, I really think it is. How practical is this? You can eat and drink whatever you do for God's glory. And when you enter into that reality and you taste the flavors and the richness, it's, it's amazing. And there's something that happens in homes when you share bread, even across culture, that's glorious and beautiful, but it's just a taste of what is to come. And yet it is a taste of what is to come. It's a good thing for God's glory. You see the freedom of that perspective. And if that's the case, then eating and drinking for God's glory and any, whatever you do, it's just a signal that there's nothing really simply ordinary. It's a picture of how God has designed us, uh, of how he's called us to himself. See, it's a reorientation of everything. That's what this Corinthian church was discovering. Life is just different. And I feel like I talk about this a lot, the combination of what we call imminence and transcendence. The transcendence, the glory. Doesn't glory sound kind of spectacular? The glory of God. It is spectacular. And it's involved in eating and drinking? Uh, it's not generally spectacular. But they're brought together. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. The mundane and the majestic. The ordinary and the divine, the glory of God, and eating and drinking. Last week, Eric talked about the Shekinah glory, the physical representation of God's glory that God's people needed to see. It was a cloud. And I want to suggest to you that when you go home and eat now, you can see God's glory in the food that's put on your table. And part of what we pray in the Lord's Prayer is give us today our daily bread. Where does that come from? Jesus is saying you need to remember, even when you take and eat, this is a gift from God that has been given to you. This is God's glory. Manifest in the most simple of ways. And God's glory is more than just a cloud. And the cloud represents his glory. It gives it a tangible reality. But the cloud's not his glory. It's just a picture of it. You know, Ezekiel, if you open up Ezekiel 1, it's in the Old Testament as a prophet. He tries to describe God's glory in chapter 1. Read it later. He fails. Because it's so spectacular. All he can do is think of word pictures. And it's kind of strange. He gets a glimpse of God's glory and he tries to put it in writing. And it ends up like, what are you talking about? Because he just can't do it. It's so spectacular and amazing. And then, so there's that kind of aspect of God's glory, but it's also brought to the table. Here it is, eating and drinking for God's glory. It's right there. That's part of why the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate it, is so spectacular. It's God's glory made tangible to us. In some senses, it's impossible to capture, yet here we're told to take the most basic of activities, eating and drinking, and do it with God's glory in mind. It's the most practical activity we can imagine. And a direct correlation to God's glory. It's like a spectrum. It feels like on the one hand, you have earthly daily stuff. Work, study, talking, eating, drinking, walking, breathing. And on the other hand, you have God's glory. And what Paul's saying is the two are not mutually exclusive. On the contrary, by God's design, they're intricately connected. In eating and drinking, they have intrinsic value because God created us with stomachs and taste buds 
and preferences. And the earth is filled with spices and a variety of plants and animals. And according to Psalm, 80, Psalm 8, they're for us to enjoy. And Psalm 8's amazing. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it ends with that. And in between, it's about animals <laughs> and things that we have to eat. When we eat, we do it with a view that it's a gift from God, and we give him glory. When we work, we do it with a view that it's a gift from God, and we give him glory as we work. Work is a gift from God. It's like those other good gifts, twisted because of sin and the fall, but it's a good gift from God. And when we do it, we give him glory. When we put it in its proper place, we don't worship food or work, or money, or pleasure, or anything created. We worship our creator. And this is the problem with idolatry, which is what Paul has been addressing. It's a cheap substitute to the real thing. We want to create, worship something created instead of the creator, and when we do that, things just go wrong. So Paul's pulling us back to the creator. Even as we enjoy the things that are created, it's like, a, like a, a Rolex that you might buy of somebody on the street who just opens up and says, you want a Rolex? You know? Five dollars. And you put it in, and it may look like a Rolex, but the components, the parts, they're not real. It's a cheap substitute. And, and, and eventually you'll find out the difference if you go swimming with it or something and it starts like changing color. Or it's not, what's going on here too? Because you were, you were, you know, you were fooled. It's a Rolex. looks like a Rolex, but it's not actually. And that's kind of a picture of idols versus God's glory. God's glory literally means heavy, weighty, the substance of something. And when you exchange the real weightiness for something cheap, and it's not, you're getting a raw deal. You can't worship both God and money. Money's an idol. You can't worship God and food. Food can become an idol. But if you look at it the right way, as something God has given us to steward as a picture of what is to come, then it can be life-giving instead of life-draining. That's what I mean by freedom of perspective. We'll never know true freedom, <clears throat> and we will settle for a counterfeit glory unless the object of our faith is the only real glorious being. If we aren't living for God's glory in this way, we're living for someone else's. That's the problem with idolatry. Now, in our Western culture, most of us aren't worship. I mean, some, some of us, and, and even in this community and context, know people who worship idols. That's, that's a worldwide reality still. It certainly was in this day. And, and then what we tend to do in the West is say, well, we don't have a physical idol, but we've got money. Or something like that. And we bow down to money in a different sort of way. I remember one time, and some of you have heard this before, when I was going through a, a Hindu temple, and they woke up the gods, and you know, we're walking through, and they're introducing us to the gods and offering sacrifices, and afterwards we were processing what we experienced. And when you see something like that as somebody I grew up in, uh, largely in, the, in a Western culture, it's such a shocking difference, but it kind of rattles your soul a little bit because you say, you're worshiping a false god. That's what it feels like. And then when I remember afterwards when we were processing somebody who was praying along with us too who said, uh, this, this is a woman who was praying and she said, God, please forgive me. My heart is a Hindu temple. That was very powerful to me. My heart 
is a Hindu temple. I mean, when you go through there and you feel like, that's not real God that you're worshiping, and you say, but what am I worshiping in my heart that's the cheap substitute? My heart is a Hindu temple. I'm manufacturing things that are not the real thing. I'm, I, God, forgive me. And so we're living sometimes for somebody else's glory, maybe even our own. And so when you come to a verse like this, which is so short but all-encompassing, it affects everything, whatever you do. It tells, it tells you the, the why behind everything you do. Why are you doing it? Why are you eating? Why are you drinking? And it gives you a reason to reorient and have a new perspective for the glory of God. That's why I'm doing it. What does that really look like? What does that mean? Just to give you a few brief examples, and we could talk about many, but some of you remember Brother Lawrence. I've mentioned him before, too. He was a man who was back in the, the bowels of the kitchen with pots and pans and just washing and scrubbing. And he had such a perspective. He said, this is where I commune with God. Even if it's the most mundane thing in the world, he knew God's glory was present with him. So if you have, if you're 16 and you're making the, you know, $20 an hour that you make in the kitchen these days, back in my day, <laughs> you know, you can still give glory to God when you're taking the Wendy's order going through the drive through That also is an opportunity to see God's glory. How that seems crazy. But Brother Lawrence says, lift your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. The most basic mundane things, then, can be laced with God's glory and reminders of what is to come, but also of what difference it means now, of why now you can give beauty to even the most basic of things. I mean, here's another easy win, because this is probably quoted at least when I was becoming a Christian a million times, when I started figuring out, what do I do about this stuff? And Eric Liddell, who was a, a runner, uh, was reprimanded for his sister, neglecting his responsibilities before God as he was focused on competitive running, says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In the act of running, he's giving glory to God. That's what God created him to do. He's fast. And when he runs, that's what gives him pleasure and also God glory. Whatever you do, if you're an engineer, you can give God glory. In any, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do it all for the glory of God. And I, I don't know if I put this on. I didn't put it on there. What I meant to do was your name here. What does it look like for you? Uh, maybe you don't have a famous name like this, and, but it doesn't matter. God has put you exactly where you are in, in the exact family. You may have scripted things completely different. I get it. But you are where you are. And, and when you eat or drink, whatever you do, you can do it for God's glory. Do you see the, the value that infuses into it, the perspective that can shift as a result of that reality? Eric put a quote up. Um, from C.H. Spurgeon two weeks ago. And I'm putting it back up here because this is exactly what he was saying there. Live for God's glory. If you do that, no testing can ever shake you. 
If it glorifies God for me to lose my property, I'm no loser. I gave to God my goods years ago. If I'm put in prison and have lost my liberty, I'm no loser. I gave up my liberty years ago. If you're told you're going to die, you're no loser. For you gave him your life years ago. I mean, how practical is that? Your perspective on everything, even, even at the last breath you take, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I'm going to do it for the glory of God. Now, I want to suggest to you, eating and drinking, whatever you do, there are temporary gifts to be enjoyed by God and give him glory, but ultimately they're just pointing us to Christ. They're shadowed the substance. When Jesus shows up, he says, I am God embodied in the flesh. And then he begins saying, I'm the bread of life. When you eat, you maybe get satisfied for a little bit, but then you're hungry again. You come and you eat me, eat of me, eat of what I offer, and you'll never get hungry. And your will will be to do the, your food will be to do the will of God, to live for God's glory. When he meets the the lady in in John chapter 4 who's looking for water because she's thirsty, he said, I'm the living water. You drink from me, you won't be thirsty again. Every time you thirst, then you, have a, you can remember if you're one of these people who are in the body of Christ, that as you, as you slake your thirst, it's just a picture of the reality of Christ being your very, your, the water of life. The water of life. That gives glory to God. Jesus alone in his person combines perfectly the human and the divine. He embodies, in fact, the very glory of God. Remember, Ezekiel trying to describe the glory of God, and he just can't get to it. Well, this is what's so beautiful about Jesus. He shows up. And now we don't have to wonder anymore. How do you describe the glory of God? Jesus says, look at me. The word became flesh. It made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know how to get this perspective and the freedom here? You can't find it outside of Christ. He is it. He is the embodied glory of God. And he bids us to come to him and enter into a completely revolutionary way of looking at the world. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you can do it for the glory of God. This is why I love Jesus, because I need him desperately. I get hungry, I get thirsty, even emotionally, spiritually, whatever. I come back, and he's still there for me. Even when I've been drinking from cheap substitutes, my own cisterns, trusting in myself, losing sight of these realities that I'm reminding myself of in you this morning, he bids me to come. He says, come. He hasn't given up on me, and he never will. He's he's sealed that by virtue of his death. And given us a down payment of what is to come. As he rose from the dead and says, I'm preparing for you a place in heaven and a feast. And when you eat and drink and do it for the glory of God, it's just a picture of what is to come. And I think as a community, that's what we are trying to remember. This, this freedom that we have, sir, in our practice as we figure that out. But also the perspective we remind ourselves of all the time. Christ is sufficient He is the glory of God. And he gives us his spirit when we say yes to him. 
And so, isn't this great? You can go, if your stomach is rumbling this, this morning, it's true for you, you're all human, but some of you are going to be able to eat for the glory of God, and some of you won't. And if you're not, here's the invitation then. You can have a completely different perspective on this, and it just starts with saying, okay, I realize this is a picture of a deeper need that I have that can only be found in Christ. That's it. He bids you come and feast on him and find that you can eat and drink or whatever you do for God's glory. Lord, we thank you for the reminders from the scripture this day that you are real and that when our hearts long desperately to find hope and peace in moments especially when we're hungry or thirsty or feel like all of our self-reliance has been taken away, then we see that we've just been satisfied with cheap substitutes instead of the real thing. The God who created us, the one who knows every hair on our head, every thought that we have, and yet still bids us to come and to find our rest in him. So we pray that we would do that. Maybe if we've never known it before, that we would for the first time say, Jesus, I need you. Don't let this moment pass by. Find your rest in Christ alone. You were designed to find that. And maybe for those of us who have said yes to that before and we find that we're running to these cheap substitutes, we confess that now, that we've not been living for your glory, but for our own or for something else. No wonder we can't find the beauty of the freedom that comes in Christ alone. And we confess that. And we say we want to align ourselves again with a perspective that says no matter what we do, we know we're doing it for your glory. Thanks for your grace and mercy, which is lavishly poured out on us, bids us to come and be honest about that. And then hopefully sends us back out now with a fresh perspective and the beauty and the joy of serving you, whether it's something like serving others in, by getting hands dirtied in a kitchen crunching numbers as an accountant, or picking up a book as a student of a subject you don't like. All these things can be done for the glory of God. We want to feel the freedom and the joy of serving in that sort of way. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray, and make it so. Amen.